Welcome to the Anthromusa podcast, exploring culture with an anthropological perspective. I'm your host, Ivy Rieger. Today's topic is about cultural representation, why terminology matters. This is the inaugural episode for this podcast. The episodes in this podcast will be uploaded weekly and will discuss a variety of different topics regarding culture in all of its aspects. The podcast is meant for educators, investigators, the general public, anyone who's interested in the topic of culture. I try to make the information that I present in this podcast accessible to anyone, and the discussions that will be taking place on this podcast will be tied to topics that are of general interest to myself, to topics regarding cultural practices in general, current events, international issues, and anything really that has to do with this huge topic that is culture, with a capital C. So without further ado, let's begin. Representation, what is it and how can we talk about it and why is it important? Let's begin with a general discussion of what the concept of representation has meant in the discipline of anthropology. Anthropology is a discipline that is housed within the social sciences. It is, very generally speaking, the study of everything that has to do with culture and the human experience. In the Americanist tradition, it was historically divided into four subfields, which over time have been molded, changed, reintegrated, further subdivided, depending on the department and university and, uh, and researcher you might talk to. But these four subfields, which were originally categorized by Franz Boas, who is for many considered the founder of modern anthropology, especially and particularly the Americanist tradition of anthropology in the United States, was divided into four subfields, linguistics, physical anthropology or biological anthropology, archaeology, and cultural anthropology. I'm speaking today about the concept of representation as it has been worked theoretically in cultural anthropology, specifically. In the 1980s, James Clifford, in his co-edited volume with George Marcus titled Writing Culture, the Poetics and Politics of Ethnography, which was originally published by the University of California Press, in his introduction titled Partial Truths, discussed the idea of anthropologists as makers of texts, not as field workers. For anthropologist field work, which is the experience of traveling to places in order to investigate certain topics or aspects about different cultures, was something that was originally considered to be an, a completely objective experience, meaning that a person would go to the field and do science with the local people regarding whatever it was that they were interested in researching. However, the history of anthropology as a discipline 
is something that is steeped in colonialist narratives, meaning that the discipline of anthropology itself was born of the colonial experience, especially in Europe, um, and to a lesser but no, no less problematic extent in the Americas during the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century. It is in many respects living proof of colonialist expansion. This is something that has been discussed by many researchers since the publication of um, Writing Culture. And it is a topic that has a lot to do specifically with the concept of representation. What does it mean? What does it mean when anthropologists are constructing texts instead of objective representations of knowledge, of local knowledge, of indigenous knowledge, or whatever type of um, information, cultural information they're gathering? Really, in a nutshell, what this means is that we are not objective, we are subjective. That anthropologists, as much as we try to do so, cannot escape many aspects of our own personal perspectives on the topics, the peoples, the places, and the historical frameworks within which we are working. Before what is generally known as the postmodern or the post-structuralist turn, theoretical turn, in anthropological theory, beginning at the end of the 1970s and extending on through the 1980s and something that has continued in many ways up till today, was the production of ethnographies or written accounts about foreign, non-Western societies, cultures, peoples, that gave a glimpse into their lives and obviously had a huge impact in Western Occidental knowledge about non-Western peoples. However, these perspectives, by and large, were written with a tone of understanding the other, as if the other was something to be researched, to be understood by the white person, and eventually to be assimilated into Occidental culture. A lot of the very early ethnographies were written with the explicit intent of what was known as safeguarding cultural practices for future generations because the researchers of the time, and I'm speaking about the early 20th century, like the turn of the 19th century really, were convinced that the inevitable advance of modernization and capitalism were going to basically cause the extinction of non-Western or non-Occidental societies and their lifeways. So many of the early ethnographic accounts were explicitly formulated to sort of preserve these snapshots of non-Western cultures. As anthropology expanded as a discipline, as different schools began to emerge in the 1930s, 40s, 50s, up until the 60s with different theoretical movements, um, all of which had their own specific objectives regarding what it was about culture that they were interested in studying. 
ethnographic practice continued, generally speaking, to reflect these old dynamics of sort of unilateral representation of cultures, very one-dimensional, very frozen in time, if you will. Snapshots, yes, and of course, all ethnography is a snapshot of a specific moment in time. However, in this historical moment, specifically, we're speaking about representations of cultures that were not really accurate. The writing culture debate is something within the postmodern movement, theoretical movement of anthropology beginning in the 1980s, um, falls within what many academics refer to as the crisis of representation. So here we have the concept of representation coming to the fore. And among the many conversations that have taken place, one of the things that has stood out for many years has to do with the question of culture itself, specifically the ways in which anthropologists who are the stewards of culture in the academic world, we could consider ourselves that way in some sense of the term, how have we handled this concept? First of all, it's a concept. It's a concept and a construct, something that has been manipulated and revised and revised again within discipline for basically it's the entirety of, it, of its existence. And at this point in time, we're talking about a moment where many academics were seriously considering sort of taking away or stopping the use of the concept of culture completely because it's just so big. There's too much baggage. There's too much history regarding it, too much colonial history, including uh, things that previous ethnographers had written about, which basically have been criticized and critiqued and disproven and in many ways um, sort of stored in the archives of our discipline, but is not something that today will take out a tome of some of some authors from the early 20th century and say, yeah, this is a great representation of ethnographic study. So these questions, these criticisms, this reflection that began in the 80s continued and continues till today, one of the major things that happened almost immediately after the publication of Writing Culture was a response from many female academics in the discipline who felt that they were not included in this very important theoretical discussion that was taking place. Something that's of note and something that's been sp spoke, spoken about and published about um, in several different areas is that the writing culture volume, which had such a bit, made such a big splash in the discipline at the time, did not include a single female author. And the supposed justification of this was because female anthropologists don't do serious theoretical work. I'm paraphrasing here, but that was something that was a response um, that was given by some of the editors of the book regarding this feminist critique or this 
female critique of why they were not included. So many female authors began to get together and, and on their own publish theoretical critiques and responses too. So many women who were working in the discipline at the time began to publish their own responses to writing culture from a non-masculine perspective. And these conversations have, have extended over the years to include members of all kinds of communities that work within anthropology, indigenous investigators, uh, members of the BIPOC community, members of the LGBTQ plus community, among many others. And of course, those who exist outside of the Occidental realm in terms of academic um, participation, people from other countries, other regions of the world that are not English speaking have begun to have their own theoretical conversations. And this is something that, again, began in the 80s and continues on until today. And it's a very broad topic that perhaps in another episode we can go more into detail about. So what came out of this? What are some takeaways that I'd like to um, talk about specifically? There are two things um, regarding representation as it stands now today in anthropology that I would like to focus on briefly. The first is voice and the second is decolonization. What is voice? Uh, voice in general terms is very important for the concept of representation in anthropology and in the practice of culture in general. It has a lot to do with who is included and who is excluded. We could say that in very general terms. So who gets to speak? Who gets to have their voice heard? This is something that if we look at all around the world in different social movements in different historical moments, pick a country, pick a region, pick a place, um, pick a moment in history, and you'll find that the concept of voice is a part of us, is a part of humankind. Those that get to be heard, those that are not heard, the struggles and the privileges of having or not having voice, whose voice matters or voices matter in a given place, society, culture, um, country, religion, etc. These are important concepts and they're things that figure greatly into the idea of representation because historically speaking, voice has been defined by Occidental culture. And I'm using that term very broadly, but what I mean by it in a general sense is those countries and peoples who inhabit the Occidental cultural sphere. Historically being European, now in the last few centuries having extended to North America, Canada, and the United States specifically. 
And we can speak about how globally with capitalism, with globalization in general, Occidental values and voices have carried and have influenced places all over the world. It has a lot to do with power. It has a lot to do with economic control. It has a lot to do with consumer culture. It has a lot to do with many, many different types of machinations that are present that make up what we know as our world today. And again, this is another very broad topic for another time. Um, I'm using it as a descriptive example, and I'm using it to sort of highlight how voices, different voices have mattered more than others over the course of history. What is the ideal form of representation then in terms of voice? Well, that there's multiplicity. Multiplicity and multivocality, meaning that there are many voices in the same room having dialogue, having constructive conversations about topics that matter, whatever those topics might be. They could be political, religious, economic, social, cultural, um, anything that has to do with the human experience. It's always better to have a diversity of perspectives from my point of view than to just have singularity. One voice or one type of voice that dominates discourse. This is something that in anthropology we're very aware of. And in general cultural practice, it's something that more and more we can see this now, especially in the last few years um, with things like the Black Lives Matter movement specifically, where this whole idea of multivocality and the importance of diversity in representation of different points of view, um, different types of experiences, and how those experiences should not be silenced but heard. These are all conversations that are happening in the social sphere all over the world in general. And it's something that provides us with an important place to look when we want to start thinking about for ourselves what representation means to us. Um, how do we think about things? How do we construct our worldview, our points of view? What kind of voices do we listen to? These are questions that we can ask ourselves. I think these are very good reflexive questions that anyone, anywhere, at any time can do. You don't have to be an academic, just anybody. I think it's important to to think about, well, how, how did I come to think about this the way that I think about it? What things have influenced me? What things can I change um, and change for the better in the sense that maybe understanding a different type of perspective could be beneficial, uh, especially in different topics. Now more than ever, I think these types of reflections are necessary and needed. It seems to me, and this is a very personal um, perspective regarding this, this idea of representation that more than ever, there's more polarizing discourse and more separation of people. And in the sense that people just sort of get into their own corners and say, no, I feel this way about this. 
and I'm not going to change my mind and not even wanting to open up dialogue with someone else's perspective. And we see it in the ways in which laws have been passed, how social um, injustices have unfolded all over the world, um, wars, and even with things like the pandemic, which has affected every human being in the entire world for these last two years. There's a variety of situations that have come to pass just in the last few years where we can see that even though it's almost as if on the one hand, there's more representation than ever. There's more, there are more voices than ever, but now there's also more polar polarization than ever. And it's a juxtaposition and sort of something that's contradictory from an anthropological perspective. It's very intriguing to, to witness and to see how this unfolds and to study um, from a social perspective, it's unnerving because it's hard to look at a place and a people anywhere in the world that you might look and see such violent sort of discord in the sense that people just don't want to listen to each other and have conversations about topics that affect their well-being. So voice matters. Um, the more voices, the better more multivocality, the better. The other topic regarding representation is decolonization. And this is something that goes with the idea of voice. Um, decolonization in, in general terms has to do with the ways in which non-Occidental discourses are included in um, the conversation, whatever types of conversation that could be. It could be academic, it could be political, it could be social, it could be religious, it could be anything. Basically, hearing the other side, hearing the voices of what we could say the oppressed, whoever those people could be or have been historically, not just hearing their voices, but that they began to take power they begin to disrupt traditional colonialist narratives of control, of power, of authority, of this perspective is the only perspective, etc. So we have um, something of a dialogue emerging, and this has been happening for several, many decades now. Um, basically, I can say since, well, in from the mid-20th century on where there was sort of a domino effect of the liberation um, of different countries from colonialist control, the last vestiges of colonial, um, Western Occidental colonial control in Africa, in South America, Central America, and the emergence of democracies, new democracies that are autonomous, that are um, under their own control, beginning um, basically at that point and continuing on till today. So now more than ever, we see this question of decolonization happening, but on a rolling scale, it, it's, it be, has begun to augment and become even more important over time. And now here we are in 2022, speaking about questions related to issues that have historically mattered to 
underrepresented or oppressed populations, but just have not been heard. And this, this is sort of proof from my perspective of the dismantling of colonialist, traditional colonialist discourse, that now there are more seats at the table. And it's not because Occidental peoples have given seats to the oppressed. Um, no, they have taken their seats. They, they are taking um, their place, their rightful place at the table to have important conversations about world issues, about um, anything that has to do with their historical and contemporary experiences, which are completely unique to them and do not have to rely on traditional Western narratives because it doesn't, it doesn't matter. It's not, it's not important. What's important is the fact that their voices are heard. So voice and decolonization are sort of two takeaways. And I'm speaking really generally about these issues. Again, this episode is a part one. Eventually there's going to be a part two where maybe I'll go more in depth um, regarding some of these concepts um, from a more theoretical level. But right now, I just wanted to give an introduction to these things. Now I'd like to continue on with something that came up for me um, and what inspired this first topic, um, this inaugural podcast. It has to do with an old friend, which is called cultural appropriation. Cultural appropriation falls within representation. It has a lot to do with this sort of idea of silencing voices, um, silencing perspectives, consumer culture, not respecting or being ignorant of or complacent in or complicit regarding the consumption, use, basically the appropriation of a culture that isn't one's own. I don't want to really get into a debate regarding whether or not something is cultural appropriation because that's that's a can of worms. But I want to give a specific example about a conversation that I had recently online um, that was really discomforting for me. I felt that there were a lot of things that were not understood um, by the party I was I was speaking with regarding cultural appropriation and that the person took offense because basically it's the internet it's a it's a black hole <laughs> it's a cesspool of emotions and people getting offended and this person instead of wanting to have a conversation a dialogue about something that's very important for the specific community that I'm about to discuss uh, which is the yoga community in the west specifically instead of creating bridges and speaking about it in a way that could be productive for both parties this person chose to get offended and I want to sort of talk about why this happened and what could be the possible causes of that um, from a cultural perspective? What's what's going on here? And again, these these are just my sort of 
general ideas on the topic. Um, I'm not trying to, by any means, have the last word about it. But again, for, for those of you who are listening and interested in discussing this, really, these this is the moment to, to start having dialogue about these kinds of things. So I'm welcome to comments about it and uh, discussions about it. I think it's very important this idea of cultural appropriation and what it means for representation in general. So the example that I wanted to talk about is from the online yoga community, Western, specifically United States, um, but we could just say Western non, non-India, right? Where the origins of yoga historically were from um, and are from. So this is a discussion um, that is very complicated in the yoga community. I am active in the yoga community. I'm a certified yoga instructor. And I've had these types of conversations before. And they didn't they didn't go as poorly as this most recent one. So it was kind of shocking to me. But I was also speaking with people who are not from the United States and who are representing yoga from other countries of the world. So I, I don't know if that has anything to do with it. I'm not going to speculate about that here. But I just found it interesting that in this specific context, and maybe because it was the online context, maybe that was something that had a lot to do with it. So what happened? Well, what happened was there was a post online from the Yoga Journal, um, which is a publication in the United States, dedicated to all things yoga, right? Theory, practice, um, and also consumer culture because it's a magazine and there's a subscription and all of that as well. We can't get around that aspect of it. And on their their online, their, their social networks, their, their online platforms, they sometimes do reposts of people who want to share their whatever videos um, of their practice or some sort of post that they have done on their personal social media accounts and they repost it or they asked to get it reposted on yoga journal. There was one of these that was published and it was a short video and the girl and the, the person in the video was doing yoga and, and she titled it something to the effect of here's a flow from my yoga sesh, right? And she was using terminology that wasn't even accurate regarding the postures. And I'm not even saying the postures and their names in Sanskrit. I'm talking about just what the posture is called in English. If you just wanted to call it something in English, like a rough translation from the Sanskrit, it was very rough from that perspective. And something about that just felt off to me. And so I I made a comment about her using Sanskrit names for the postures, for the poses, the asanas, as they're called. And um, I never expected her to reply because it's a huge platform. And I never expected anybody to reply to a comment that was so sort of, I don't know, short. But she did. And she, she accused me of being offensive and she accused me directly of being a troll (laughs) and she accused me of many things and we got into a conversation basically it was not a back and forth it was really 
me saying something and then her like wanting to have the last word about it. And um, the impression, my personal impressions of this are not important here. But what I want to draw attention to regarding this issue is that terms matter. That's why this podcast is called Why Terminology Matters. Um, words matter. Returning to the idea of voice. Now, if you're a certified yoga instructor, and I'm a certified yoga instructor, when you learn the postures, the asanas, they teach you the terms in the language that you're you're taking the certification in, which in my case was Spanish, um, but in English, whatever else, it could be French or anything. Of course, you'll learn the the translated terms for the postures, but you also learn the Sanskrit terms for the postures. Why is this important? It's not just names. Because each posture, and this is regarding the specific case of yoga, the the name for the posture of the asana in it, in Sanskrit, implies the essence of the posture itself. I'm going to give you an example. In English, um, the triangle pose, which if any of you listening out there have done yoga, even just an introductory class in yoga. The triangle pose is an asana, a posture that is very common in any yoga practice. And its name in Sanskrit is Utita Trikonasana. Okay? Utita Trikonasana. Now, what does that mean? In Sanskrit, Sanskrit, Utita means extended. The word utita means extended. Tri means three. And kona is an angle. This is the extended triangle, which is done first to one side and then to the other. Utita trikonasana. So utita is, is extended. Three is three. Kona, an angle. And asana means posture. Okay? Now, we can see here that just from this example, the term matters for describing what the posture is. It's not the name of the posture, the asana. It is what you do to get into the po- What does the posture represent? So from my perspective, this matters. And saying triangle can describe the shape of the posture but it doesn't describe what you're doing it doesn't describe extended triangle does not you don't say extended triangle sometimes you might say extended triangle but that's not really what the idea of the posture actually is so these terms matter and we can argue that well things get lost in translation and this is true um not everything has a direct translation from one language to another. This happens all the time. But the when we don't care or we don't pay attention to why we use the terms we use and what we can do to sort of improve this aspect of being, in this case, representations of a millennial practice, which is in this case yoga, we are we are stewards 
of this practice, if we are teachers of and students of yoga in this case, then from my point of view, we're not doing our job. We're not doing it accurately. We're not doing it with care. And this is a problem. One of the responses I received to the, to my comment from this person, because she immediately assumed that I was personally attacking her, which was not the case, was the idea that, well, why don't, why don't you just meet students where you're at, where, where they're at, excuse me, why don't you just meet students where they're at, meaning, why don't you just teach them what they know and not force them to do anything else? That is not the point. The point here is why don't we teach people how to be good stewards of cultural practices that are not, their origin is not within American culture. And instead of meeting them supposedly where they're at, why do we assume that where they're at is not being able to learn or understand or appreciate the term for a posture in its original language? When, of course, you can offer the translation of that to your language, that's not a, that's not a problem. Thank you so much for listening to the Anthromusa podcast, exploring culture with an anthropological perspective. See you next time.